It sounds like the start of an action movie, a chest of buried treasure hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains with only a poem as a clue. Well, for years, people have been risking their lives, even quitting their jobs, just to search. And online, a community of treasure hunters is going wild. That coveted prize sought after since 2010. At least four people died trying to find it. Next tonight, the million-dollar treasure found after a decade-long search, a chest believed to be filled with gold coins and jewelry unearthed in the Rocky Mountains. Tonight, the art dealer who hid the chest of gold coins and jewels tells Denver 7's Lance Hernandez... Someone finally found it. Well, I, actually, I was a little bit shocked uh, because they hid it in a pretty good place and lots of people over the years couldn't find it. There's been no word yet on who struck gold and Fenn still not revealing exactly where that treasure was found, only saying he received a photo of the treasure and its location from that lucky man. Here's anchor Shelby Cashman with the exciting details. Not by us. Brittany and no. I did not find this. If only, right? <laughs> we wish, right? Forrest Fenn's treasure was found on June 5th, 2020, and announced the next day. The morning after that, about 4 a.m. his time, I heard about it from Daryl and called him back later. Wait, so how do you? But how do you? How do you know this is real? I, I'm looking at it just briefly online, and I, all I can it's from from Forrest wrote to Daryl and told everybody. Where do you see that? Daryl had been searching in Yellowstone that whole week. My first thought was that it had been him, but it hadn't. I got sick. I traveled three days on a Greyhound bus. It was, I had a partner that left. Um, I went to jail for a day for an old ticket. It was just horrible. Oh, man. Instead of finding the treasure, Daryl and his searching partner had had the cops called on them, arguing outside of a Walmart. His partner took a bus home early. Daryl went to jail for a few hours over an unpaid traffic ticket. It was a bad trip. But when he got home and found out someone else had found the treasure, that was worse. I put a lot into this. I mean, uh, I have no money. And I use other people's money. And I borrowed and I, and I really thought this was going to work. And I spent three days in a freaking Greyhound bus during COVID-19. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it shows you, uh, shows you how hard I tried. But it is what it is. It had been Daryl's whole life for seven years, and now it was over. But what was weird was how little else we knew about how the hunt ended. Who found it? We didn't know. Where was it? We didn't know. What did the clues mean? We didn't know. Why don't we know? We didn't know. All Fenn said was that it had been found by a man from back east, and that he wished to remain anonymous. It was a terrible ending to the story. And as news kept not coming out, it all just kept feeling more terrible. I don't know. I don't know, I haven't slept. I haven't slept at all. Why was the finder remaining anonymous? Why withhold the location of something that wasn't even there anymore? How is Daryl going to face his new family without a treasure to outshine his failures? It is such a, a sight emeralds and gold you, you, you've seen in the movies pirate movies where a chest is full of gold and emeralds that i mean we're talking about real life now we're not talking about the movies and the comic books this is this, this is missed fortune an apple original podcast from high five content 30 minutes west and outside magazine i'm peter frickwright
Pretty much the first thing that happens whenever anyone finds a treasure, someone else tries to claim it. A woman who claimed she was on the cusp of finding Forest Fen's famed fortune has filed a lawsuit saying her solution was stolen. This week, David Harold Hansen filed a lawsuit in federal court against Finn. The lawyers took about two days to reach Finn. One lawsuit was from a real estate attorney named Barbara Anderson, who said the finder had hacked her devices, and Finn was in on it. She would ultimately sue them both. What did we learn? That if someone finds your treasure, you're going to need a good lawyer. He texted me and said, hey, Carl, Somebody found the chest. I think this changes things. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I think it changes things. Well, um, that, was, that was Saturday morning. Carl Summer is a very good lawyer and Forrest Fenn's attorney for all things related to the treasure hunt, which is not to say that he knew what to do when the treasure was found. I mean, I felt kind of foolish because I'm involved in, a, in cases where people are saying they found the chest and I know they didn't find the chest. And I hadn't thought about, spent the time or energy to think about, well, what if they did find the chest? Yeah. You know, I hadn't played that little thought experiment. All he knew in those first few days was that Forrest and the finder would soon meet up. And that could be bad for Forrest. I persuaded Forrest that... People were already, I mean, in the community, there were already enough conspiracy theorists that that was a hoax and, you know, it was never real, etc. Um, and I said, if you have him show up at your house with a chest, you will never be able to dissuade anybody that it wasn't there the whole time. And so, you know, there's all these claims out there. I said, you cannot have him come over to your house. You can't meet with him at your house with a chest. Because of the lawsuits, no one got any more information until about 10 days after the find was announced, when Fenn published pictures of the treasure chest out in the woods with the lid open. The problem was that picture didn't answer any questions about where the chest had been or who found it. Forrest didn't tell anybody. Forrest did not tell anybody. Nobody knows where it is but me, and, you know, there's an old saying, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. The one thing we did eventually learn, about a month later, was which state the treasure had been in. Fenn had spoken with the finder, he wrote, and he, quote, understands how important some closure is for many searchers. So today he agreed that we should reveal that the treasure was found in Wyoming. It was the last piece of information we'd get from Fenn. Well, how about this? New Today author Forrest Fenn has passed away at the age of 90. You may remember him as the iconic creator of the 10-year... About two months after the Wyoming announcement, on September 7th, 2020, Fenn was found unconscious at home. He died that day. It was almost like he'd been waiting for the hunt to end. His last piece of unfinished business. And it kind of seemed like Fenn's death would be the end of the story. Fenn was gone. The finder was anonymous. There wouldn't be any new information. And there wasn't. Until September 23rd, 2020, when someone posted an article titled A Remembrance of Forrest Fenn and identified themselves as the finder and owner of the Forrest Fenn treasure. He wanted to eulogize Forrest. But what he didn't want to do, he said... What he would not be doing is telling anyone 
where anything had been. I hope that place will always remain as pristine as when he first discovered it, the finder wrote. Two people could keep a secret. Now one of them is dead. The first thing Daryl did after learning that the treasure had been found was try to bury his feelings. But where he used to bury his feelings in good times, in partying and drinking, this time he tried to bury his feelings in good deeds, in helping other people. So I decided to uh, get up off the couch and cry to myself one day about what's going on with me and, and go out and help somebody. And Daryl went to a houseless guy that he saw every day and told him he'd help him with whatever he needed help with. Get him an ID, a card for food stamps, give him rides around town. But that ended up causing more problems than it solved. And I left the, the homeless guy in the back seat, ran into the house, was there maybe two minutes, and the guy stole my car. Jeez. It was like Daryl needed confirmation that no good deed goes unpunished. And he got it. But none of it addressed the real problem. What, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't find Fen's treasure anymore. And so how are you going to, like, what's your plan moving forward to, to kind of deal with those feelings of, like, wanting to live up to, to kind of the other members of your family? That's a good question, Pete. Without a treasure to endlessly pursue... You have to turn and face the things you've been running from. Uh, I really, I really so wanted to be successful with this. Is I just, I, I just have this, um, this terrible and wrong feeling about not being good enough. You know, I failed basically. I don't know. I got to deal with that, and I'm not sure how to deal with that yet. Uh, do you, can you just give us kind of like a like a update, like what we're doing? So we are here. Eight hundred feet, turn right under Bob Michel Bridge, West Washington Street. Thanks. With Alexa. <laughs> um. Before Fen's treasure was the answer to all of his problems, the answer to all of Daryl's problems was finding his dad. And the idea that he was out there somewhere had gotten him through tough times. But now it was time to learn who his dad really was. What was this place? What did he really missed out on? Um, we are in my mom's and father's old uh, stomping grounds. We are in East Peoria, Illinois. This should be the experience. And then um, basically get a family education. First of four days here. Peoria, Illinois, is an industrial town that most industries have left. Comedian Richard Pryor famously grew up here in a brothel and pulled a lot of material about life in the inner city from the streets of Peoria. But drive 10 minutes in any direction, and you're in corn country. In fact, Peoria is such a diverse mix of wheat fields and housing projects that in the heyday of vaudeville theater, 
the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the phrase, will it play in Peoria, came to mean that if a show tested well here, it had enough mass appeal to be successful anywhere. Today, the saying is used mostly by ad agencies testing new products. Will it play in Peoria? That's a timeless question with special meaning for marketers. When Daryl found out that his dad was from Peoria about five years ago, one of the first things he did was go and meet his new family. And they welcomed him like they'd known him forever. But they also kept it pretty surface level. He heard all the stuff about his dad and his family that was easy to talk about. Um, I don't know. I'm nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nervous. Yeah. I think we've talked about that. I just, uh, a lot of emotions. After those first few visits, however, Daryl stopped going. Because the more he learned about how great his dad was, the more he felt like it highlighted his own failures as a person and as a father. We hadn't really talked about it much, but Daryl has four kids, two girls and two boys. And he's not ashamed of them. Daryl's just someone who aspired not to have kids outside of marriage. And that's not what happened. Daryl's first two kids were conceived while Daryl was in the military in his mid-20s. He'd been dating one woman for a few months, they broke up, and a few weeks later, he started dating someone else. Fast forward a few months, and both women show up while Daryl is playing quarterback in a flag football game. Both to tell him they're pregnant, and the baby is his. The kids were born three days apart, a boy and a girl. Um, so, they were born, and I, I felt horrible that I had two, two different women. Um, morally, it, it, it kicked my ass because it was the exact thing I did not want to do because my mom did not. Daryl tried to make a relationship work with one of the women, but it didn't. And as a father, he was spread a little thin. So after he got out of the military, he went back to Seattle. And he decided that to make up for it, he would be the first person in his family to finish college. So he took classes all day and worked in a grocery store all night. That was it. And uh, so that's all I did is, you know, I worked full time and I went to school full time and and barely got any sleep. But then Daryl finished a semester and got a break. He went out to a club, met a girl, and she spent the night. Seven months later, she comes knocking on my door. Wow. She says, you the daddy. I said, oh my God, not a fucking again. But when he went to see his son in the hospital, the kid looked white. And it had been one night, one time. What were the chances? Took that damn DNA test. Came back 99.964%. I'll never forget those numbers. 99.964%. That's my son. Wow. So Daryl added more child support, did his best to be present in yet another household he didn't live in. But mostly, he buckled down again at school. He never finished his degree because he landed his dream job as a police officer first. And then he met someone. Um, we started dating. We move in together. We're living together for over a year, maybe two. And then she got, and she didn't think she could get pregnant. Turns out she was wrong. And that's daughter number two, child number four. And you had a relationship? For another two years after that with her. Okay. And then it just didn't work out. 
five years later is when Daryl met Kem, the only woman he's ever been married to. And then they split up, and Daryl ran away to Dallas for five years, right when his kids were in elementary school and junior high. Those are tough years to be missing a parent. So heading into Peoria to see this loving, generous family who had all devoted themselves to community service, to learn about his father, the genius who everyone admired, Daryl was feeling like a deadbeat dad who hadn't found a treasure and never would. That doesn't play in Peoria. Alright, we got you good? Yeah, yeah, bring the chair. Cool. The custodian of Daryl's family history in Peoria is Wayne Cannon, Daryl's cousin, who runs the Peoria Food Bank. He's 62 years old, but it's no exaggeration to say he looks 30. And he has the pressed and starched fashion sense of a lot of the Cannon men. Coming to see Wayne and the rest of the Cannons meant Daryl was giving up on the fantasy that he would join this family as some sort of hero after finding the treasure. But if he wasn't a hero, who was he? And who was his dad? You guys have broken before? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you got his nose, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wayne and Maynard were close before Maynard passed away. They had dinner together at least once a week, and sometimes killed a bottle of vodka, passing it around the table. What's the movie Shawshank Redemption? There's, you know, that character. He could always get what you want. Uncle Manny could always get what you wanted. Whether it was gas, whether it was a drink, whether it was women. You know, Uncle Manny was always that type of guy. Always, always. He was a brilliant man, a genius. Wayne says Maynard had been a lot of things in his life. He'd run a jewelry store, been a sheriff's officer for the county. He'd worked for Caterpillar, owned a grocery and liquor store. But most of his life, he ran nightclubs. The Aqua Lounge, and then the Blue Shadow. And being the black owner of a nightclub in the Midwest in the 70s and 80s meant that as a man, Maynard was a little bit of everything. A hustler and a gentleman. A charmer and a schemer. Not a man that was easy to boil down into a couple of sentences. Though he asked everyone I talked to to try. The suave, debonair, uh, ladies' man. <laughs> he was a ladies' man. Maynard's uh, nephew, Carl Cannon. That's what probably got him in trouble, too. <laughs> and you knew by just talking to him or being around him that you knew he was not somebody to be played with. Nephew Mark Porch. Because once Maynard Cannon's mind was made up, that was it. That was it. That was it. Everyone described him a little differently. But the essence that shined through was of someone so magnetic, he could be hard to handle. He was a character, man. He was a character. The women loved him. I mean, you know, it, it, it wasn't his fault that women loved him. You know, they loved him. I told him one time, like, Maynard, is there anybody in Pure you haven't slept with? <laughs> Sherry Cannon was married to Daryl's father for 15 years. And Daryl isn't the only child to have come found the family after a DNA test. <laughs> What'd he say? He laughed. <laughs> Yeah, think about it for a minute, right? <laughs> right? He just laughed. But to Maynard's son, 
and the guy following Maynard's son around with a microphone, she painted a picture of a brilliant man with a strength to answer for every weakness. But I tell you, the best part of him is, I have one daughter. Since 10, he'd been in her life, and he was, like, great with my daughter. And when she, had, when she went through some mental health issues, Maynard was there. I mean, he made sure that she was okay. And that's how we really reconciled, because of the fact that the care he gave her. When I was, couldn't really connect with her, he was able to do that. And he just pretty much, you know, was just like, for me, he's like, he saved her. So that, that was kind of, and, and so I knew. And what I say, said, even at the end when we talked, I didn't take what he did as wickedness more than weakness. He had some weaknesses about, you know, some of the things that he did. It was, and it was like, you know who you're dealing with. So that's why I said, you know, we, we had great times and we had some tough times. But I say the great outweighed the tough. Maynard passed away in 2010, and it was quick. He coughed up some blood. The doctor told him it was pneumonia. And then he succumbed to lung cancer in just three weeks. He stayed in the hospital for about four days, came home, and was gone in four days. We never made it to the oncologist. It was just that quick. Maynard just wasn't someone who waited around for things to happen. That was it. I mean, he went that quick. And the doctors told me, I said, how does that happen? He said, Sherry, you know your husband. He said, and Maynard was not going for hospice. He wasn't going to be wearing diapers in it. But he was a man that was just on the go all the time. He always was someone who figured out what he wanted and then went out and got it. He's remembered as a person who spent his life overcoming obstacles through sheer force of will, charisma, and charm. My, my, my cousin, my first cousin, called me a couple weeks ago. He said, if I went to Peoria, Illinois, and I said that I was, you know, Maynard Cannon's son, that people would, like, stop and, and want to, like, you know, bring me to their house, and 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 that um, he was well respected, well known, well loved, well liked, um, and was just a good man. That was a lot to live up to, because Daryl had encountered an obstacle that he never overcame. Maynard spent his life making money. Daryl spent all of his money looking for treasure. But just like Daryl's first few visits to Peoria, we'd soon find out that we were still getting the sanitized version of Maynard's life. The full story was yet to be told. And it turns out, a lot of treasure hunters felt the same way about the treasure hunt. Tell me, tell me about the, the journey, your journey since it's since it was found? Well, unfortunately, I seem to be a rarity in that I've moved on with my damn life. This is Sasha Dent, who we've heard from before. She was the treasure hunter who watched Forrest Fenn encourage people with his blog posts until it sometimes started messing with their heads. I generally don't like to talk about it, and I don't follow what goes on now, especially with all the craziness and all the conspiracy theories. After the treasure was found and the first lawsuits were filed and Fenn passed away, 
Treasure hunters started getting the idea that something was not right about the end of the treasure hunt. It's not that there were holes in the finder's story. It's that the story itself was a giant hole. Give people information gaps, and they'll fill in the blanks with whatever's nearby. That's how conspiracy theories work. And what was nearby was the idea that Fenn had ended the hunt himself, or his family forced him to tell someone where it was. Fenn was under pressure from his family to end the hunt. The threats, the stalking, treasure hunters arrested on the property, plus COVID making travel more difficult and complicated for searchers. His family wanted all of it to be over with. Then there's the fact that the exact language of Fenn's Wyoming revelation is that Fenn and the finder agreed to say the treasure was in Wyoming. The announcement doesn't read that it actually was in Wyoming, which is exactly the kind of semantic game Fenn was known for. But easily the most jaw-dropping evidence that there was more to the story of the end of the treasure hunt was the email exchange in late December 2019, about six months before the treasure was found, between Forrest and Dale Neitzel, who ran the website Forrest used to post his scrapbooks and make announcements. Neitzel suggested that instead of ending the hunt completely, Fenn should reduce the incentive, replace the treasure with a time capsule of some sort. Folks could still try to solve the poem and follow the clues, Neitzel wrote. No money at the end, but still fun. I like that idea, Fenn wrote back. I am leaning toward retrieving the chest, and will probably do it sometime before the next search season. Fenn insisted that he never actually went and got the chest. He always maintained that the finder found it on his own. But you can see why this is all such a mess. He was very much a puppet master, and he was playing, and we were all pawns. And you know what? He'll get exactly what he wanted out of it. What's that? To be a legend. Hmm. Forrest wanted to be a legend, and it'll work. It'll work, Sasha says, because the crazier everything got, the more his legend grew. And things kept on getting crazier even after Fenn died, when yet another skeleton turned up in his closet. Journalist Dan Barbarisi. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the general backstory is that, um, you know, several women on the blogs in the 2015-16-ish period made allegations that um, Forrest Fenn was... Um, was soliciting, uh, you know, nude pictures and asking for meetups for sexual acts with women of the search. The accusations fit the framework of a typical Me Too story. Man in position of power is accused of wielding that power to gain sexual favors. But back in the mid-2010s, when the first allegation was made, the Me Too movement hadn't happened. And it all sort of went away. The coverage of his death stirred it back up. And, uh, you know, there, these allegations are not one or two people. Um, I have talked to well more than that. Um, and, you know, some people wanted to go on the record and some people didn't. And some people 
wanted to and then decided not to, you know, ultimately. And, you know, there's there's various issues there. But, you know, and, and Fenn, for the record, has, uh, you know, before his death uh, to me and others has denied that any of this stuff is real. And he said that the emails were fabricated and, um, and all these things were made up by people who, you know, were angry about the search. Fenn's not alive to respond to any of this, but it's pretty well documented that Fenn had an ego that needed constant maintenance. He liked flirting with women. He didn't seem to notice, or maybe just didn't care, how having put a treasure out in the world might change the interaction. If I was the poor bastard who found it, I was going to be so screwed. Everyone in the world would have accused me of sleeping with an 80-year-old man to find a treasure, and there was nothing I was going to be able to do to, to fix that. But that's because that's the society we live in. A society that apparently includes you who believes that a man and a woman cannot be platonic friends and share a deep friendship without it being weird or sexual in some way. Hold on, why do you say that includes me? Well, because um, you, I feel like you keep trying to get to what the nature of our relationship and making it like, I feel like you're trying to get me to say that there's some sort of sexual nature to it. And I feel like that I'm being pressured into that because we keep going mm. to my, the nature of my friendship with Forrest. Gotcha. And this is not, and I might be a little defensive because it's come up so often. Again, just this week, just this week, I found out all these people with YouTube channels are saying these things about me. These people who have thousands of followers are telling people in person at Forrest Fen events that I have sent him topless photos of myself and blackmailed him into being my friend. So maybe I am being defensive about that. I'm just tired of being people implying I'm a whore and that's why Forrest was my friend. Mm. I'd like to think that there's a lot more substance to me, which is what caused him to be my friend. Mm. Yeah, I mean, fr- from, from my chair, I'm most interested in the psychology of Forrest Fenn. And you have access to that. Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) But it was not a pretty picture because you got to see the good and the bad. And I think you're getting that feeling. I did live on both sides of that. I did see the angel and the demon. If people trusted Finn, if his personal brand wasn't conniving and scheming, this whole thing probably wouldn't have ended how it did. But here we are. There, this, there is no other way this treasure hunt could have ended than in the complete shit show that exists now. Forrest worked people up too much. And then they didn't get what he promised them. To Sasha, Fenn's legacy is the legacy of the treasure hunt. An incredible thing that became defined by the ways in which it went wrong. But Fenn's attorney, Carl Summer, he saw someone different. Uh, Forrest, to me, was uh, on many levels unapproachable, not unapproachable, but he, you know, he was so charismatic and charming. Um, but you didn't really get to know him that well. You know, he, he, the, he was behind some pretty high walls, but he was still so kind and so generous and so... Uh, forgiving to people and you know he was he never went out of his way to in my experience with him never went out of his way to talk 
badly about the people who were doing crazy things. You know, he was just, you know, he just, he just was, either he was a kind man. And uh, I'm sure I didn't have to deal with him in circumstances where I got to see something else. But I'll give you uh, an example. In my office, I, I like Abraham Lincoln and I like his writing and, you know, and I like his history and I, you know, I'm just fascinated by it. I'm a, a Lincoln file. And um, I have Lincoln stuff all over my office. I've got a little bust of him. I've got a, an old thing. You know, I've got quotes. I've got books. So, you know, and they're, they're just sort of scattered around my office. And uh, after one of our meetings, uh, he was in my office. And he, you know, he looked around and he said, so you like Lincoln, huh? And I said, yeah, I like Lincoln. And uh, uh, he said, okay, well, I've got something for you. And he left. And, you know, I didn't, I just said, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he showed up a couple days later with a, a signed commission, uh, uh, a commission of the appointment of a second lieutenant in the Union Army, signed by Abraham Lincoln. It's on my wall. He gave it to you. It's there. And he says, that belongs on your wall. I was like, wow. You know? So that was my experience with him. Sorry. He had that, he was kind and he was thoughtful. I'm sure he, um, I know he was not perfect. And I, I know he had, you know, he just like um, everybody else. I asked him one time, I said, you know, Forrest, we've, we've been through all this. Has this um, changed your view of humanity? I mean, what you've been through in this? Because this was, you know, he already had the break-ins and threats and uh, lawsuits and uh, somebody stalking his granddaughter. And, you know, I mean, it was, and, you know, more threats of lawsuits. And, you know, it was, it was ongoing. And I said, you know, so in that context, I asked him, I said, has this changed your view of humanity? <laughs> and without hesitation, uh, he said, Carl, I think 80% of humanity is awful. Or he said 85% are awful. The other 15% aren't much better. I consider myself in that in the court documents, and that publicizes my name. That's next time.
Missed Fortune is an Apple original podcast produced by High Five Content in association with 30 Minutes West and Outside Magazine. The show is written and hosted by me, Peter Frickwright, with writing, editing, composing, and sound design by Robbie Carver. Story editing by Michael May. Additional editing by Alex Ward and Tierra Darnell. Additional production by Ann Bailey. Additional recording by The Audio Planet in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Final mix by Stephen Cray. Michael Derman is our line producer. Accounting by Matt Rock. Additional consulting from Gene McHale Waite. The executive producer for High Five Content is Andrew Jacobs. Executive producers for 30 Minutes West are Peter Frickwright and Robbie Carver. Thanks to Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kyes, and Michael Roberts, director of audio. Legal services provided by Chris Keen and Diana Palacios. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And if you like the show, leave us a review. We'll be back next week.